Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. But first, Mitch, what have you been up to, man? I have been doing nothing but absorbing rain. It feels like uh, Seattle over here in St. Louis because of... <laughs> in fact, as I say that, my phone starts buzzing because we're getting an emergency flash flood warning. What? Really? Yes. Uh, we are in the middle of Hurricane Bob, or the remnants of Hurricane slash Tropical Storm Bob, <laughs> and it has come up the coast up to Missouri, and we are deluged in rain over here in in Missouri. It's it's kind of fun. It's it's just like being in Seattle. Now, in my case, I happen to live on the top of a hill, so I'm not too worried about the flood situation. But those folks at the down at the bottom of the hill are a little bit nervous. Oh, man. Yeah, um, I've been seeing pictures of flooding in the Midwest, but I didn't realize it had gotten as far as you up there. I live yep. on in the Pacific Northwest now, and I have zero rain. Like, it's sprinkled <laughs> once over the summer, and what? that's about it. Yeah. You know, what? they told me before I moved up here, it rains a lot out here. But honestly, no rain, just a little drizzle every once in a while. Uh, it's pretty nice. Uh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. All right. On that note, time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. And actually, I hit that cue too early. First, before we move anything <laughs> on forward, I wanted to talk to you, Mitch, because you mentioned in last episode that you had the road link in for review. Have you messed around with this at all? Because I kind of wanted to actually hear from you, your first impressions and everything on, on how you feel about the unit. I am very impressed. Uh, first off, just so everybody knows, I am sponsored by Rode, and they did send it to me for free, so there's that out of the way. Um, I really liked being able to set it up, and, and actually what I did was my very first um, Periscope broadcast. Have you, have you fooled with Periscope yet? Of course, you don't have an iPhone, do you? Yeah, you have uh, Meerkat and Periscope, both of those, well, but I'm not really into that whole like direct action live video yeah. that's ephemeral thing so much because you know what are you gonna do watch me talk in front of my cubicle uh-huh. you know uh-huh. well i thought it was fun i i tried it and uh, just to see how it worked and i did a live sort of unboxing of the road link works really well i'm very impressed there's like no setup. You push, push the power button on the receiver. You push the power button on the transmitter and you start working. How are the uh, mics included with it? Uh, are the LAVs pretty decent sounding? It's it's Rhodes LAV mic that they typically sell for 99 bucks. Okay. $90 or whatever. Um, sounds terrific. I, I have yet to do what I was going to do was do a side-by-side with the smart lav recording into the iPhone versus the road link going straight in uh to the camera i mean i was i was so excited because i've not had a wireless unit before oh really um, i've you know i fooled with the sennheisers you know and stuff like when when i was doing uh on stage kind of stuff i've done that before but i've never owned one and so actually being able to record straight into the camera instead of having to do sync afterwards was really kind of awesome yeah, people uh, always say, oh, it's so easy to sync, and that's sort of true, but it's such a time-consuming, painful process. Even if you have like it, a good click mark and everything else, you still have to sit there and post and tweak things. 
And just having yeah. it on your clip, it's so nice. Honestly, I record into the camera as much as I can. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I don't know why you would. I mean, I have a friend that just even still manually syncs all of his stuff. Manually. And he says, well, I've got the clapper track. You know, I've got it right there. So yeah. uh, uh, all these tools have an auto sync feature in them now. <laughs> why? Why wouldn't you let it do it? Anyway, yeah, I'd still rather record directly into the camera. And it was so nice because I was I was standing there going, wait a minute, I don't have to clap in front of my face anymore. This is awesome. So for those of you not familiar with the uh, Rode Link here, I'm going to go ahead and present the screen. Uh, this Great. is a Wi-Fi enabled audio transmitter. It's transmitting on the 2.4 gigahertz range. Uh, it has encryption, so you can't intercept the signal. Uh, it is doing lossless compression, according to the specs. And it's about $399, so it puts it about 200 bucks underneath of some of the nearest wi wireless competitors, like uh, the Sennheiser units that I use or the Sony units that are also very popular and in the same class. So for and those of you working with uh, um, wired mics, having LOVs is really fantastic. And, and the Sennheiser doesn't come with uh its own mic does it when you uh, buy yes kit? it does the m okay. me2 okay. is what's included which is their base version um uh, omni pattern lav and you know a lot of people upgrade their lavs right away to the i think country is the name of the uh expensive version but um I just use the ME2s. I've never had really much issue with them. They sound fine. But, you know, how much resolution do you really need for people talking? Uh, it kind of exactly. just depends on how uh, anal you are about audio quality. It's the same with syncing, actually. Um, and I've had this fight with a lot of people like, oh, you need to sync audio because you'll get the best audio. Well, that's sort of true. But then it's back to that whole thing where you're recording audio for voice. And voice only takes up a certain spectrum range. It's not that imperative that you get all the most highs and all the most lows in order to capture voice correctly. And then you're going to color it a little bit with a microphone anyway. So great. You've captured the highest sampling rate possible into a field recorder, and then you're going to dump it into something. It's going to get compressed into whatever format it's being sent out it. And then you're back to square one again. So then you spend all that time getting the best only to bring it back down to CD quality in order to exactly. go to broadcast or whatever. Exactly. Do you, I mean, when you do third or third, sync sound do you record it in 96 now because that's available as opposed no, to 48 that's just stupid uh, um, <laughs> amen uh, for amen, those of you but... that aren't familiar i used to run a recording studio way back in the day and at the time we were moving from ADAT or ADAT tapes which are it's an eight track format that uses like a vcr style tape to digital systems and for about five grand you could upgrade your decks to a 24 track uh 44-1, 16-bit uh, sampling rate, or you could spend more money, get 12 tracks instead of 24 tracks, and you would get 96K sampling rates. I listened and listened and listened. I had other people listen. Only time anybody could figure out what was different was when they actually saw the labels on the units, and they're like, oh yeah, that one's definitely the better one, obviously. But otherwise, you know, blind test, no one really could tell. And maybe it's because I didn't have million-dollar headphones plugged into everybody or, or whatever, but for the average Joe out there and for most movie, movie viewers in general, having that sampling rate is kind of a waste of data. You are collecting a bunch of stuff, and... Really, do you need it? I mean, that's my personal opinion. Obviously, everybody has their own, and I've been fought with and argued with and told that I am incorrect many times. <laughs> so, uh, 
you know, do what you want, but in my personal opinion, I don't want to waste the space recording higher sampling rates for audio when I can just do it at a standard 44.1 or even 48 hertz if you really want to go up just a little bit. There's a really cool formula called the Nyquist theorem. So if you're really interested in finding about audio curves and how sampling rates work, uh, look up that theorem and it'll show you why we record at 44.1 and why it makes the most sense. Now, <laughs> actually moving on to the news as opposed to these rat holes I've dived into. Uh, first thing up on the list here is the Sigma 24 to 35 millimeter f2 lens. Uh, Sigma did previously release the 18 to 35 millimeter f1.8, and that was for crop sensor cameras. This is a full-frame lens, full f2 across the 24 to 35 millimeter zoom range. So it is the widest aperture for a zoom currently well, soon to be on the market, I suppose. No price yet on this guy, but it is a maximum aperture of f16, 82mm uh, filter threads, uh, focus distance is about 11 inches, and a few other random specs, 9-blade aperture and so on. Uh, Mitch, are you excited about this thing? It's kind of cool, but f2 versus f2.8, is that enough to entice you to move to a Sigma lens? I... I think it's very nice that they're coming out with several different kinds of lenses. Uh, we're always excited about new lenses, right? Because yeah. those are where people should be invite investing as opposed to spending billions of dollars on every new body that comes out. Um, I, it is, it, is it enough? Well, you know, hell, some people get excited over F 1.8 versus F two, right? That's true. Uh, uh, so typically I try to shoot wide open when I'm doing stuff because I'm a narrow depth of field kind of guy. Uh, so that may make a big difference to many people. The price, I mean, it would be nice to know what the price is in order to fully kind of qualify, but there's no price. Yeah. No price yet. I, I was looking around all over the announcement just came out, I think yesterday. So uh, they haven't come up with any price, but if I had to guess, I would say aim for probably $1,300 to $1,200 range. That puts it right underneath of the 16 to 35 millimeter from Canon uh, by enough of a margin to make it attractive. It's still in that sort of wide range. It's a little weird, though, that it's a 24 to 35. That's not a huge zoom range, uh, right. but the literature from Sigma says that they were focused more on image quality for the glass as opposed to longer throw. So uh, maybe that's the case. Uh, it's nice that it's at least full frame. Uh, a lot of people love the 18 to 35 f1.8, so hopefully this will be popular for Sigma because they've been coming out with a lot of good lenses lately. Their art series in general is kind of an exciting proposition, especially if you want to save some money on primes. Now, yep. moving on down the line, this one's actually yours, Mitch. You want to tell me a little bit more about this Doxy One uh, adapter for the iPhone? Oh, I did it again, Doxy <laughs> DXO One. Dang it! Oh man. Okay. Oh man, where where did you come up with that? We were talking about this before the show started, and he's like, uh, "Well, let's talk about this Doxy thing." And I'm like, "Are you talking about the DXO?" Okay, DJ, I love you, <laughs> love you. Huh? Huh? Um, I, this is a an interesting little story for those of you who haven't seen it yet. It is over on Planet Five D. You've heard of that website, right? Planet Five D. Um. I like it because of the fact that it's an it's an ability to add on like a fancy sensor and a fancy lens to your iPhone. 
and it is a lightning adapter. D, uh, DJ asked me about that, whether it does Android. It is an, a lightning adapter, so it's only going to fit on the iPhone for now. Whether or not they're going to add something to it later on, we'll have to see. But it's, it's in the vein of controlling your sensor and your lens with the awesome user interface of a smartphone. Are you switching? Oh, there you go. Yep, I'm switching to it right now, guys. So um, taking a look at this, one of the things I saw right away, and I was talking to Mitch about this pre-show, is actually that you'll notice the 1-inch sensor and the 20.2 megapixels uh, available on that 1-inch sensor. And where have we seen this before? We've seen this on the FZ1000, the RX10, the RX100, and now the camera or the Canon G3X, which we'll be talking about in a little bit in the show notes. And these are all 20.2 megapixel one-inch sensors. Is this basically a Sony sensor being used over and over again in all of these devices? Uh, the other interesting thing uh -huh. about this DxO1 is f1.8 lens. So if you have some of uh, the well, what's the uh, what's the iPhone? Isn't that an f two point two or f two eight uh, full I aperture? It was two two, yeah. Or I was two, thinking two? it was a two point two, but um, it, because that, interestingly enough, you're getting the depth of field kind of stuff because they're controlling the lens and the sensor. So you're not using the iPhone lens here. It has its own lens attached. For those of you who are listening the podcast as opposed to watching the podcast live or on tape Can we still say tape uh no i don't think we use tape um, anymore the digital file <laughs> it's 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 rather appealing because it's going down that arena of attaching the smartphone adaptability the ability to add software to tweak software to the camera system so I think a lot of things are going to go that way. We've talked about it with the Sony Air before. Um, you know, we've we've asked Canon in the past whether they'll ever do anything like this. Uh, it it's just it's just super appealing, especially since it does fit in your pocket more easily. It is a smaller sensor than a typical DSLR. Uh, the other negative to me right now is that for video, the only options they have showing on this are 720 uh you can shoot 120 frames per second at 720 and at full hd your only option there is 30 frames per second you get to you don't get 24 so i'm kind of like same question here huh why not at least throw in 24 my guess is that typically iphone users quote unquote only shoot 30 frames per second so why would anybody want to do anything differently i don't know yeah, you have that entire external device. Uh, it seems like it would be nice to add a few more frame rates to the mix there just so people have some options. Um, yeah. Also, comparing this, uh, I did finally see this hitting the market, and now it's available uh, on eBay. Still not making it to the United States, but uh, Mitch and I have talked about this before, the Olympus Air AO1 right. body. This is basically just a little tiny lens-sized can with a Wi-Fi adapting capability for your phone, and uh, it supports any Micro Four Thirds lens and has an Olympus sensor, same thing you see in, I believe, the uh, D5 Mark II and D1. So these are 380 bucks, 390 bucks, 360 The only thing I couldn't find out, and it says shipped from Japan on these, 
are the air shipping with English menu systems or are they shipping with <laughs> Japanese menu systems? Because the manual I was looking for online was all in Japanese. So this may be a, if you don't read Japanese, good luck, buddy. But uh, yeah, <gasps> all of these are pretty interesting. I am excited to kind of uh, hybridize the phone, add an external sensor and make things better. And it looks like this is one more step in that direction, especially with something right. that's cute that can go in your pocket would like to see something for, you know, Android smartphones, but uh, I guess uh, iPhones get all the love, huh? All the love. Yeah, all the love because they're killing everybody else in the market. But anyway. Now, moving uh, on. The price point, just, oh. just I don't think we mentioned the price point for those people listening on audio. Uh, it is $599, maybe you said it. $599? Yeah, would be nice if it was a little cheaper than that, I think. But That's pretty spendy, I mean, you man. are paying for a sensor. Right. Yeah, but uh, yeah. I don't know. Five ninety nine. You go up a what two hundred bucks, and you're at the FC one thousand from Panasonic, and that shoots four K. That's a full camera, not just a sensor, and that's a full size uh-huh. lens with a twenty four to four hundred millimeter zoom range. This is two hundred dollars less, and you get an f one eight lens with the same twenty megapixel one inch sensor. Huh. Huh. It's a hard sell, man. It's a very hard sell. Huh. And rolling on down the line here, this one is the next one as I kind of advance and steamroll over Mitch here. Uh, We've got the Samsung external uh, SD drive. This is a USB 3.0 drive. You can find it for about $147 for the 250 gig variant and 500 gig variant. We'll set you back at $247. We also have a one terabyte version. It's cute. It's slim. It's basically an M.2 drive slammed into a cute little carrying case. Mitch, what do you know about this guy? I was hoping you know a whole lot about it. Uh, the article was interesting to me purely because it's a portable drive that you can attach to your laptop or whatever while you're out in the field. I'm assuming that's where people want it. The article discusses the fact that they're using USB 3 as the user interface. I'm sorry, not user interface, but the interface between the SSD and your laptop. And they... I, I was a little curious, which is why one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up to you, because when I was doing my research, and you remember that show we had about hard, hard drives, drives and storage and space, drive speed and all that kind of stuff a couple of weeks ago, which was a great episode for those of you who should go back and watch that particular episode. And I don't remember which episode number it was. I apologize. It's they the article talks about the drive speed as being somewhere in the 430 megabits per second megabytes megabits whatever the right mpps and even though ssds are typically up in the 1100 range now if you're putting them internally in your system i thought usb 3 was rated up to 5 gigabits per second so why is this not closer to 1100 which is where the SSD is rated. Okay, so this is a bits versus bytes problem here. Uh, Labeling for certain devices, uh, such as bandwidth for USB uh, 3, as well as SATA connections and so on, are sometimes used in, you'll see like uh, 6 gigabit as the label for that. Bit means a single unit, whereas byte means 8 units uh, in a binary count. So basically, you have to take the bit and divide it by 8 in order to get the amount of megabytes that are available. 
and that's the speed that we're measuring in, say, that Blackmagic speed test. So right. in reality, on a USB 3.0 port, if you are not using any header information at all or any uh, control talk uh, along the controller on both sides, you would be maxing out in the 500 megabyte range. Uh, oh. not, not, you know, so that's that's the actual throughput for okay. that device. But bits-wise, you know, it goes up way higher because you take that number times eight. So God. that's the, the final value. So with an SSD, especially the Samsung SSD, for example, uh, it's basically, with all the overhead information that's required via USB 3.0, it's m- saturating the USB 3.0 connection pretty much to its limit. So it's using the maximum amount of bandwidth that's available for that particular uh, format of plug into your computer. Uh, when 3.1 comes out, you'll get a little bit of a burst, but until then, 3.0 is, is where we're at in most systems. And so that's not bad, actually. You know, it sounds like you, when you, you hear the number and you hear these other numbers that have gig in the title versus meg, you're like, oh, wow, this is obviously faster right. and this is silly. Why would I do this? But with this drive right here, 480 meg or four, even 400 meg is plenty for doing 4K editing live off of a drive. Uh, that's enough speed to do you know six or seven streams of 1080p in a timeline without having it hiccup or anything like that. And writes are the same way. You're going to have plenty of bandwidth to do that and it's all just down to the um, USB 3.0 controller. Now this if you break these apart, this particular Samsung drive we're talking about actually does have an M.2 drive installed inside of that. And if you're not familiar with an M.2 drive, it's basically just an exposed um, you know, I've got one right here actually. This is an M.2, but it's just an exposed SSD. So it's basically the connector portion as well as the chips on the inside and you slide it onto your motherboard. It's, it's nothing crazy or anything. And then this guy just has a USB 3.0 adapter that's bringing that M.2 connection out to something that you can interface externally. And then they built a nice little case around it to make it cute. So, uh, you know, if you can get away with like a project size of, of uh, 250 gig or uh, 500 gig or something like that these external drives will do the trick no problem and they're fast enough for most applications if you are traveling mitch and you wanted to edit on your imac or on your pc desktop or something like that uh, moving this from one thing to the other it's the perfect solution for that sort of thing uh, and honestly this one's pretty cute they're like super tiny the size of a phone you know they're using i think they're using the 40 millimeter standard for the m.2 drive inside of that so i mean you're talking something that's like maybe this long and uh, the size of your cell phone so it's really easy to pocket it's a lot of data and it's really fast data access and they're they're not very expensive looking at the pricing i was i was pretty impressed because the 250 gig base unit's only 147 bucks yeah, SSDs have come way down in price. Um, you can get 500 gig drives for your uh, regular system for you know 180, 190 dollars now. Whereas to this time last year, you were talking more like I would say 350 or so in that price range. So it just keeps getting more and more affordable. Um, I know we didn't add this to the show notes, and I'm going to kind of spring this on you. But did you see <sighs> that 500 gig? Um, micro SD card that was like class three compliant. So it had read and write speeds in the 400 or 500 meg range, uh, basically keeping up with an SSD and it's a micro uh, SD card. I mean, (gasps) yeah, exactly. That's what I thought too. 
Now, you know, imagine now for a moment, if you will, a micro SD card that you can pop into the back of your cell phone or whatever, but this thing is capable of SSD speeds and it has a, I think the maximum storage capacity for the units go all the way up to one terabyte. So one terabyte in a micro SD card, uh, you're going to spend a lot. I think the card price was like 1200 bucks for the big guy and like 850 for the 500 gig version. But man, that is a crap load of data in a format that's like the size of a penny. Yeah, you, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to lose that sucker in your pocket. Oh, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, how are you ever going to find... I, I, I dislike micro SD cards because they're so dang tiny. See, I feel like something like that would actually be an expansion for your computer. So, you know, you have a micro SD port on um, your laptop or whatever. You have one of those cards and maybe it's one of those click-in where it goes flush and then you don't ever take it out again. So you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I got this desktop. It's a little bit slow. I'll put in a micro SD card and, you know, now I have a fast editing drive that has, you know, 500 gig or a terabyte worth of storage space or... You know, if you're trying to shoot raw 4K footage, imagine how much nicer it is to use media that's so tiny yeah. that you just, you know, plug it in. But then again, you take that out, it, you know, shoots into the grass. You'll never find it. You just lost 1200 bucks <laughs> in a field somewhere and all your footage is gone. So yeah, that little spring spring release and bing. Yep. <laughs> Uh, you're funny, DJ. Yeah, it's kind of scary, actually, if you think about it. But I would suppose yeah. if you had it plugged in your camera, maybe you'd use your camera as your interface. Because honestly, like I have my micro SD card in my cell phone, and I think that's a 64 gig or 128 gig card, and it never comes out. You know, it's permanent storage in there, but it's not nearly as fast or as high capacity as this. So uh, keep an eye out for that. I think that was posted in the last show notes. So. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can check that out. Moving on down the line, though, from... I got, I got a oh. question for you, though. Shoot away. Do, do, well, are you going to... Let's say, because I just bought um, a little typical USB 3 card reader, you know, like a CF card, SD card reader. Okay. Is that going to give me the kind of speeds that you would get from that micro SD card, or do you have to have some fancy fancy schmancy faster usb3 micro card reader thing uh so if you're using a usb 2.0 card reader you are limited by us 2.0 or usb 2.0 compatibility right. so you're wasting the bandwidth available but to mine you is three. mine is usb3 okay so here's the usb3 unit right here right you can right. saturate your usb 3.0 bus using one of these and a really fast card so you can read off of these extremely fast and i just so happened because i was doing some editing earlier i've got the 95 meg uh sandisk cards right here so this has very fast read and write capabilities in com combination with this i can basically clear this 32 gig card off in you know under a minute and a half to two minutes you know so that makes it really nice to just be like copy everything over to my editing drive. I have a one terabyte SSD in my system and I edit off of that. The other thing that's really handy, and uh, this is super small as well, and this is a 256 gig uh, PNY USB 3.0 thumb drive. And the read and write speeds on this aren't as fast as you're getting out of that SSD, but they're in the 200 meg range, which is fine for editing, transferring files and so on. And you can pick these up. I think this guy's like $64. So it's really cheap, 
really small, and it's not so small as to be lost in the grass or you know in your pocket with your keys, <laughs> and it still has 256 gigs of storage. So um, what I've been doing lately, and I've got a 128 gig around here somewhere, is when I'm done with a project, the 128 gig variant is like 40 bucks. So I just tack on $40, $40 for media to my bill when I'm uh, handing out something to a client, and I give them all of their project files and their final project on a USB thumb drive like this, only 128 gigs, because most of the time I'm shooting, you know, short format stuff, you know, three minutes, four minutes, maybe 10 minutes, or it's just, you know, an interview type situation where you only have a few clips. So you can fit that entire project on 128 gig thumb drive, costs you 40 bucks. It looks professional when you turn it over like this. They sell a cute little package on Amazon that you can have custom printed or any of the card companies do this, that you can slide your USB stick right into it. It has a little fold over, a cute little case that it comes in. You hand them the little pamphlet. You're like, Here's your project. It's got your name, all your contact information, and you don't have to burn a freaking disc or whatever to turn over your media, and it makes it really nice and convenient, and I don't have to worry about storage. Once I hand this to them, I hit delete, and I turn it over to them, and it's their problem. Unless, Do you really? Yeah, unless they have a contract with me to you know retain data right. for like uh, 16 days, 90 days, or 120 days. And I do have some of those. That's why I have the massive server below me, which is, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you need 24 terabytes worth of storage, then you need it. But uh, I like to clean that up whenever I can so that I don't have to continue to store people's projects that I'm no longer working on. But yeah, that is a really great way to turn stuff over. And those pamphlets, um, any of the card manufacturers, uh, if you get business cards or whatever, they make the little cute sleeves. And you can have whatever you want printed on it. And they're sleeves just for a USB stick. You slide it in there, you close it up, and you turn it over, and you have a nice little pamphlet that's kind of advertising your stuff. And I think they they sent me back like 25 cents, 30 cents per flyer mm-hmm. thing. So, you know, and I'm charging them for it anyway. So what's it matter? Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, a lot of applause for that one. All right. Yeah. Anyway, media is kind of a weird <laughs> thing. Um, I don't Okay, I got one more thing. Uh, if you ever have to turn over a bunch of documents to someone after you've done work, you know, whether you sign releases or whatever... Paper is freaking expensive. It's actually cheaper now. For like $1.50 or $2, you can buy like a a 4 gig or a 1 gig thumb drive on Amazon. And you can scan and load all the documents that you have. That way you don't have to duplicate them for other people. And you turn over a little tiny thumb drive to your client and say, here is all your release forms. That way you don't have to worry about dealing with paper. Uh, That's also something I do. Pro tip. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Yay! Moving on down the line here, um, let's take a look at the uh, Sony FS700. Now, this camera has been out for quite some time here. I'm going to share my screen so everybody can see this. And for the podcast listeners, uh, sorry, you can't see this. But (laughs) anyway, the FS700 just got a price drop down to about $5,000. I think it's $4,999. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, the FS700 has a vast amount of frame rates available to it, all the way up to 960 frames per second. It has a 4K upgrade path with the addition of an HXRIFR5. Thanks, Sony, for those wonderful names, uh, which would add about $2,000 to the price. But you have that path to move forward. And you have a great low-light camera. This is pretty comparable to the Canon C100 Mark II. And it's about $500 less than the Canon C100 Mark II now that they've dropped the price on it. Mitch, is the C100 still relevant? Or with all these cameras coming out, uh, is it basically going to be resigned to the annals of history? 
<laughs> um, isn't this camera like 300 years old? We're yeah. talking about ancient technology here. Why would anybody buy something that was like announced five years ago? Because it was super sexy when it was announced, and it hasn't gotten any less sexy. <laughs> it's I, I'm just making a joke because, you know, everybody, we, we, we in the media typically are excited about new stuff, right? We always want to talk about new stuff, and that's what sometimes gets the readers excited. Uh, but there isn't anything wrong with the old technology. I mean, this stuff, FS700 creates great uh, video. Like you said, it's it has an upgrade path. There's a lot of people who are still using them. It's Sony, which produces good gear. So I love to see price drops. And uh, just because it's older technology doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I think where I'm going with this is that uh, a lot of people see like the C100 and C100 Mark II as kind of the upgrade path from a DSLR shooter to sort right. of a video shooting system. And if you're still on the fence about that, the C100 is kind of a hard sell these days just because it's missing so many of the features that all the other manufacturers have either added or been adding for quite some time to their cameras. The FS700 was a flagship model, like you said, a couple of years ago, so it's it's fairly dated, but it's still a flagship model, and its flagship specs uh, put it above the C100 by a substantial margin, and it's priced now better than the C100 itself new. And I'm looking on eBay right now, and you can actually find this guy for around $4,000, which puts it at $1,500 less. And the, the people that are selling it used are offering up um, one-year warranties and so on with the camera and low hours, you know, 400 or 500 hours worth of recording time on it. I, that's a really good deal. And if you want yeah. to move from a DSLR to a video camera, I mean, Sony's got some great stuff. And knowing that in the future, you know, you keep this camera in the workforce for four or five years, you have the option to spend, you know, two grand and move up to 4K recording. That's also a really nice deal. And they're still releasing firmware updates for this camera as well. And it kind of fits in line with the whole uh, F5 and F55 cameras that Sony has in the top end of their line. So once you get familiarized with this, if you ever get onto a project where they're shooting with more expensive cameras, you kind of are already familiarized with uh, the Sony control system and everything else you make some a very awesome points and by the way we do have a question because i'm keeping my eye on this and it didn't show up in the comment tracker but it is over on the youtube channel so those of you who may be tuning in late if you want to tune in live by the way we do post links on twitter and places and you can always go to a one lone dorks uh, channel <laughs> that's a that's a funny name anyway omaze asks do you think there will be a Sony A7S II? And if so, when can we expect that? Of course there's going to be, right? Yes. They've got to put out a new version of that. Okay, so it appears Sony's upgrade path is the same method that they use for their release path. We got the A7, we got the A7R, and then we got the A7S when they released the A7 series to begin with. Now we're doing the same thing with the Mark II versions. We're getting the A7 first. We got the A7R, and I would say probably by the end of the year, um, maybe around the Christmas range, they'll be releasing the A7S. It could be even earlier than that. And the Mark II, the features I expect to see in that are probably internal 4K recording, as well as the 5-axis image stabilization system, and Yay. probably... 
the similar sensor technology, it might see the upgrade with uh, the focus system. Um, if you look at the upgrades we've been seeing in the Mark II versions and the Mark IV for in the case of the RX100, uh, these cameras are basically just getting A, 4K, and B, some uh, focus system upgrades. And then on their high end, they're just getting the 4K resolution as well as the uh, image stabilization system. And that's incremental, but the increment there is very substantial as far as the image stabilization system goes and 4K internal recording. Because if you've ever had to use one of these with an Odyssey or anything like that, it's in the freaking butt, you know, to to have that giant extra external recorder or whatever. Uh, sticking with the Sony A7S with internal 4K recording would be great. Um, am I going to upgrade? Probably not. I don't think that <laughs> the Mark II version of this will offer enough of a sweet spot for me to make the move forward, uh, especially since I only shoot low-light stuff with my A7S right now. Uh, but that's what I see coming forward down the pike. Mitch, you have anything to add to that? Really, I, I think at this point, it's really getting kind of confusing to the typical user as to what the differences are between the A7, the A7R, and the A7S. Um, especially if the A7S has those features that you just mentioned with the, you know, the sensor stability and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if they wouldn't be better off just merging them all into one camera well the problem is though they're trying to compete with canon in the high megapixel range and nikon to a lesser extent uh and then at the same time they also want to compete in low light well more pixels means less low light performance less pixels means more low light performance so by having three split lines uh they're kind of doing the same thing as you do with like the astral photography versions of the cameras like uh the Nikon D10A or B or whatever it right. is you know the one for astral right. photography missing the IR filter or whatever you have that option to move to one branch and get low light performance another branch and get as many pixels as you can cram into a full frame sensor and on the other branch like a middle of the line kind of sort of you know toss up between the two if anything, to me, I think you should just have the low light performance or the high resolution and you should forget about the A7 altogether. But uh, that's just my personal opinion. I'm not in marketing. It seems weird to have like a wishy-washy middle and be like, hey, guys, here's the middle camera and here's the other ones that are on either extreme. You don't really need the middle one. It, it, what you know? What do you get there that you wouldn't go for either a little bit less pixel count or a higher pixel count if you were going for you know billboard photography or something like that? Uh, right. I don't know, man. Uh, I got no clue what Sony's got thinking in their brains. Other than it's cheaper, right? I mean, the A7 II is cheaper than the A7 though. Yeah, there R- is a, a price variant. But is it that significant? I thought it was only like five or six hundred bucks. Well, the A7 II on Amazon right now is seventeen hundred dollars. Oh wow! And the A7R, the Mark II that we just talked about, was thirty two hundred. So yeah. yeah, there's a big difference. Okay, well there Price you go. Wise. Price wise, that's the that's very affordable change. I wonder if the sensor really adds that much to the cost of the camera, or if it's a hyperinflated value placed by sony on the camera itself (laughs) yeah well we'll never know that will we yeah well anyway um the thing is about sony in general and what i've been frustrated with is stuff like the uh 
A7S, the firmware updates for it, they just released a 2.0 firmware update for it. And what does it do? It doesn't add, you know, the option to, to add controls to some of the custom buttons like I wanted or some of the other firmware or uh, menu system updates that I would have liked to have seen. Instead, what do they do? Oh, hey, guess what, guys? You get faster boot times. Okay, (laughs) so thank you very much for giving me a firmware update that has nothing to do with anything anybody even wanted. You know, no one was out there screaming and pounding at Sony's door saying, hey, if only this camera could boot up one second faster than it did before, my life would change forever. No, that's not what's going on here. You, What is that even? Ah, Man, Sony, get your act together. (laughs) Jesus, Uh, it's so weird. And I, I think it's just because they're about to abandon their first generation of A7 cameras and they're moving right. their teams from the, focusing on firmware updates for that to, you know, kicking out a firmware version for the newer cameras. And then once they're done with that, they'll probably abandon those two. And next year or the year after, that'll be the reason you have to move to the next cameras because guess what? We're not supporting this one anymore. And now you, sir user, wasted your 2000 3000 or whatever dollars on the camera and you'll have the next shiny thing in front of you to waste another two or $3,000 on. Oh, well, yes, that is that is the very typical process that happens with every kind of product. We we tend to forget that most products have a cycle like that and that the manufacturers do have to make some money somehow. Right. But I see constantly that people are asking for the A7S to have internal recording for 4K, like that's going to come on a firmware. Uh, That ain't happening, folks. If you're waiting for that, uh, sell your camera now because it's not happening. (laughs) They're going to want to sell you a new camera that has that new feature on it. That's where they make their money is selling new features, not adding firmware to older cameras they may make bug fixes and and we did see that with canon under demand back in the old day with the 5d mark ii where they added 24 frames per second but significant upgrades are not coming through firmware ever yeah the only person that's really doing anything with the firmware right now or company actually is panasonic Uh, they keep releasing kind of not blockbuster but definitely significant improvements uh, already we've seen vlog in the wild uh, for the panasonic gh4 i believe the camera store was testing it recently uh, there's even some uh, ab video out there on youtube if you want to check that out so some companies are listening and doing that the the frustrating thing for me is like the rx10 and the rx100 both of those previously i mean they were capable of shooting 4k i'm gonna put myself out on the line and say, I'm pretty sure 99% positive they were capable of shooting 4K internally. But Sony said, nah, not this round. Because, uh, you know, the new RX10 and RX100 are basically the same lens, the same body, only with the 4K internal recording and some higher frame rates. Uh, maybe the higher frame rates weren't possible with the data processing or, or what have you, but the same chip that's used in their 4K video cameras is used in their 4K stills camera. And if that's the case then there's no reason why that chip's not capable of capturing 4k in the previous generation the only reason to make you move forward is to take it out of one camera and add it in the other camera and continue to produce pretty much the same thing over and over again so they reduce their manufacturing costs and increase their profit on the cameras themselves it's you know like you said people have to make money but at the same time 
man, don't make it so obvious. You know, at least like add a nub to it or something or make it look a little bit different. So you're like, oh, I'm confused. I didn't, oh, this looks new. Okay, that's great. You know, trick me a little bit. Make me feel like you're doing something good for me. Don't just uh, jab yeah. me in the eye and say whatever. On uh, that note. This this has been done for a long time, by the way. My uncle who used to work, who used to work for a large computer company, which I will not say the name, uh, used to tell stories of of. 10, 15 years ago where they would sell a printer and if you wanted to upgrade it to the new features, the tech would come out and he would flip a little switch on the inside, right? (laughs) And charge you an extra $1,000 for the upgrade to your printer and all he did was flip a switch. So like you said, the capability was there, blah, 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 blah. It's been done for a long time. It's nothing new. Now, getting off my horse here and moving on to less <laughs> ranting and more news, we've got the Canon uh, G3X. Now, I've completely forgotten, or I, I had completely forgotten about the G series. I used to own a G12 or 13 uh, five or six years ago. Uh, back then, Canon's G series cameras were known for the fact that they could shoot uh, raw stills in a compact camera. Well, the G3X is out, and I'm looking through the specs. Um, basically, you know, this is a super zoom pocket camera, 24 to 600 millimeter focal range, uh, f2.8 to 5.6 lens for the zoom range. But the interesting thing for me is 20.2 megapixel one inch sensor. Now, I alluded to this earlier. Where have we seen this? Well, the oh. DXO has it. Uh, the FC1000 has it. The Sony RX10 and RX100 have it. And now Canon has the G3X. The question in my mind is, are they all using a Sony sensor? Because that's what uh, it seems like. It certainly does seem like that, doesn't it? And we showed or talked about somewhere not recently, not too long ago. I don't remember where because my brain is like that. Sony has 40% of the sensor market these days, so it's quite likely. And we've also been told that, excuse me, my throat, that Sony Canon (laughs) has been purchasing Sony sensors for point and shoots for quite a while. So I don't think in the slightest that this is not a Sony sensor. It probably is. Canon likes to reserve those for their own sensors for the higher priced cameras. Now, looking more closely at this particular camera release here, it's nothing extremely exciting. Uh, Basically, you've got 1080p recording. This does have HDMI output as well as headphone jacks and microphone jacks, which is nice for a point-and-shoot camera. Uh, You've got (laughs) Wi-Fi features here. But otherwise, how well does this really compete with uh, Panasonic's FC1000 or Sony's RX10? This is priced at $1,000, so that puts it a few hundred bucks over Panasonic's FC1000, which shoots 4K. And the Sony RX10 uh, and 100 are very close in price range to this. Uh, it is a super zoom, and 600 millimeters is nice. And I've got some video footage here in the show notes if you guys want to take a closer look. It does look like it shoots pretty decent 1080p footage, but... Man, everything now that's being released at the same time has 4K video recording capabilities. Is Canon's point-and-shoot compact cameras really, like, keeping up with the the pack? I mean, seems kind of like they're behind and sort of irrelevant now. That is one of the big questions that is being tossed around in a lot of forums and a lot of discussion threads around the planet. 
is Canon falling way behind on everything? Uh, part of the problem for Canon is that they have a three-year product cycle from development to production. And I, and I sort of wonder if they haven't, if they shouldn't start focusing on faster product cycles, because what's happening is that the Panasonics and the Sonys of the world have shorter production cycles. I mean, it, again, if, for those of you who don't know, uh, I worked in, at Boeing for 32 years, and I'm very familiar with the manufacturing process and the procurement process and everything that happens on the backside to create an airplane. And it's very similar to creating a camera, especially if you're in a large organization. The bigger the organization gets, the slower things happen. Uh, and it's, and it's, and, and unless, unless you do some streamlining somehow, some way of your development cycle, things just take a long time. And, and, and if you start thinking about the fact that, let's say you want to add a new part that you don't manufacture yourself. And even if you do manufacture it yourself, you've got to come up with design specs. You've got to test it. You, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on in the background. So creating these things is not trivial non-trivial event to create a camera uh, but it seems to me and to many other people that canon is somewhat falling behind especially considering that canon tends to not pay attention to trends until they're really entrenched trends they don't want to be on the bleeding edge they want to say okay the consumers have chosen 4k let's go there now right yeah uh, we've because we we complained two years ago that Canon wasn't doing 4K and well they're finally getting to the point where they're doing 4K. Anyway, long rant short, Canon's still selling on the other side. On the flip side, they're selling a boatload of cameras. Uh, people complained when the C100 first came out at whatever price it was, like eleven thousand dollars. Oh, this is too expensive, too expensive, and the price came down a little bit. I saw a lot of C100s at NAB this year, people shooting booth reports with a C100. It, and they're selling like hockey. They, they, for a while, couldn't keep enough of them in stock. So although Canon is getting plenty of dings, they're also still selling a boatload of cameras. Well, to comment on the uh, time for development, one of the things that most of these camera manufacturers do is they have a processor platform. And so by developing that processor platform, they're actually keeping themselves in line with, you know, all their all their camera generations. So with Canon, they call it the Digic processor. Uh, with Panasonic, it's the Venus engine. With Sony, it's the Eximer. Um, all of those platforms are basically just an ARM processor that they program, and they program, and then they use different features across their entire line. That's why when the Digic 5 came out for Canon cameras, you saw that implemented in the Rebel series, as well as the right. higher-end series, and so on. So really those features could be spread out across the entire line with that. Anything with that particular processor could have all the same features of their high in line or low in line, just dependent on what they choose to, like you said, flip a switch in the sensor. And that's less about a development cycle and more about what features they choose to let you use in one gener or one version of the camera versus the other version of the camera and how much they want to charge you for that, you know, a little bit of software that's running on the processor in order to get there, Canon could 
you know, grab features from their high-end cameras and start tossing them across the line if they wanted to. But, you know, there's probably like 20 managers in a committee meeting and some sort of like group uh, analysis group that wants to figure out like, how is this going to monetarily affect us? And by the time they do all the studies, they're that much further behind, as you said, with the giant group. So I yep. don't know. The, these are all rants that you'll hear constantly from <laughs> many people that follow the technology. <laughs> it's just a frustrating cycle that happens all the time. I'm going to leave it at that and say that basically the G3X is out. It's a $1,000 camera. It does have a 600mm zoom range, which is very impressive. I could see this handy for a point-and-shoot camera for people who are you know, into wildlife photography and things like that. And it does have some decent capabilities as far as video goes. At $1,000, it's a little spendy, but most of Canon's stuff is a little spendy. Especially the first time they release it, and then over time it comes down in price. Indeed. Um, as a sidebar, uh, Ome has asked the question in the YouTube chat, will they remove the 30-minute record time limit? And the answer to that is a very simple no. And that's because the time limit purely has to do with Europe's taxation laws. And we discussed this, I think, last week on the show. Europe taxes video cameras and they they classify a video camera as anything that shoots more than 30 minutes of video at a 30% tax rate. They just have this law on the books and it's been on the books for a long time because that's why the 5D Mark II when it first came out had a 12 minute limit because the taxation at the time was 15 Yep, and they, they moved it up from 15 minutes to 30 minutes. And so Canon bumped theirs up to 2959. Uh, so it's not a, it's not a physical limitation. It's not any kind of camera limitation software or anything else. It's purely has to do with taxation. And until the European people, whatever the right taxation limit thing is that the European I think they call it that. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to go away. So sorry about that, Omaze. You're stuck with 30 minutes. Yeah, if you do want a camera that will record longer than that, um, the GH4 is one of the few in the sort of uh, Micro Four Thirds DSLR line that does have the full recording capability without running out uh, at 30 minutes. Uh, the G7, which is the new release under Panasonic, just just below the GH4, that one's still capped at uh, the minute mark, uh, 29.9 minutes or whatever. So... You know, um, it is what it is. Buy a video camera, I guess, if you really need to record for hours and hours. Or a GH4, because I do like my GH4. Uh, moving on down the line here, we've got a few uh, cleanup <laughs> items. One thing here, and I'm kind of excited about this, Mitch is less so excited, is Adobe 2015CC. It's basically hit the market, and it is pretty sexy. Uh, if you're not familiar with the features, the biggest thing here for me personally is the color grading options that have been added to Premiere Pro. Uh, they've added a bar across the top of Premiere Pro now where you click on a different layout for your editing screen, and it brings up sort of an interface that's very similar to what you get in Lightroom for uh, color correction and curves and so on. So you can just do simple sliders to, to change contrast. You can add vignetting, lens correction, and so on. And it's all really simple and Lightroom-esque to use. Uh, this is basically bringing the power of photo editing features to color correction in video format so that you have that option to just 
move faders instead of having to bring up a speed grade or bring it into some other color grading application and do all your work there. Mitch, I know you're not a CC user, but have you considered it with these new features? Huh? Um, <laughs> no, I, I right now, for me personally, for what I do with Planet 5D and the other training programs that I'm working on, Final Cut 10 does what I need it to do. I've trained myself on Final Cut 10. I don't want to spend the extra time to switch. I don't have a need to switch because I'm not doing fancy-ass color grading. I'm not doing gobs and gobs of uh, film editing as 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 we speak. I, I just don't have... There's a not enough pain points in Final Cut 10 to make me switch to Premiere, even though there, there may be sexier features. And frankly, I expect some of those sexy features to be in the next release of Final Cut 10. So why would I switch? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you told me, man. I'm actually bringing uh, up... Um, Premiere Pro right now so you guys can kind of see this if I can get it to open sometimes it takes over some of my other uh, <laughs> yeah, yep it's taking over audio never mind uh, you're that not going to see that cut, by the way that morph cut is really sexy I haven't messed with it yet but that's on my list of things to try um, right now I, I had some other projects that I was working on so I just I baby stepped into it because I'm always really scared when I'm in the middle of editing a project and Adobe releases a new version of, of Adobe CC and you open it up and then something is broken in your timeline and you're like, Oh, what do I do? And when you run into that, um, it can set you way back. You have to uninstall everything, and it could be some leftover bit that's installed on CC that's causing the problem, and then you, you're fighting it. So I've only installed it on one machine right now. Uh, my other production machine is still running 2014. So That's very wise. And, and I'm going to interrupt you because I saw a thread on one of my Yahoo groups, and yes, there are still Yahoo groups out there, <laughs> that... Um, warning the install of this version of Adobe CC will delete older versions. Like if you had, um, Premiere six or, and I, and I apologize because I don't know all the numbers. It used to be that if you upgraded with CC, that it left all your old software versions. If you still had older versions out there. Yeah. And this particular version suddenly has wiped out people's older versions. And oh, so I haven't read much about it because it didn't apply to me. I, and I, I only saw it yesterday afternoon. So I was busy doing my daughter's dance recital. So I haven't, I, I'm just throwing it out as a caveat. Go investigate that if you are indeed thinking about upgrading and you have older versions still on your machine, make sure you investigate that. Now, I can yeah. say my own personal install experience, I did install 2015 on one working machine, and I do have Adobe CS6 also installed on that machine, and CS6 did remain intact. Um, I'm still using CS6 for editing. Uh, CS uh, 2015 did delete 2014, though, and it did delete uh, my, because I, I have some presets that I normally use, and luckily I have those saved to cloud, but uh, I like my layout of my screens a certain way, so right. when I logged in, it did not bring that over. It deleted that entire settings folder, and thankfully I'm smart enough to have a copy of that, but if you don't, 
don't. That could suck if you have a certain layout you like for editing or whatever. And and that's kind of like, you know, going into someone's car and moving something around. It's not the end of the world. You can move stuff back. But right. it's frustrating when you're like, oh, I'm hopping into this project. Wait a minute. Where's my, you know, assets pain? Why are we getting full-size clips? You know, I don't want full-size clips. I just want the names, you know, or, or whatever your preference right. is. But right. um, there are some cool features, and it's really nice if you're paying for the subscription that now we just get updates all the time as opposed to waiting for the yearly or two-year cycle for Adobe to release a new version. Uh, I like CC. Uh, the other thing that yeah. came along with this is actually uh, new raw support. So if you look on Adobe's site, you can find 9.1 Adobe raw supporting cameras like the new Nikon uh, D810A, as well as the G7 and a few others on the list from Fuji, as well as Nikon. I think the N1J5. I don't even know. <laughs> Not super familiar with that camera. Um, so those have been added to the support list. So if you've gotten a new camera recently and you're having trouble with support for raw format in uh, Lightroom, you should be able to get that and start going again. So that's a good thing. I, I do want to say something about the morph cut, by the way, that I saw one example and people were getting all hot and bothered about it. Do and tell. it looked really nice. I'm sorry. I said, do tell. <laughs> it's it's really really nice to have a talking head when you do a jump cut and you know that you're editing out some faux pas the guy said and if you're not careful in this particular example the background there was movement behind the talking head guy and the background you know how uh um oh, i can't come up with the name twixter well, yeah. if you're using Twixter, it will kind of morph things. Re, you know, it'll. Yeah, you'll end up with crazy well, people. Like it'll like split someone in half, and then like they'll just right. sort of fade into like nothingness, or they'll be like in a weird. So the jump cut can work really awesomely. Like if if we were doing a jump cut on you or me because there's a static background, it works brilliantly, right? But if you got some movement in the background and suddenly this thing gets, like you said, person gets cut in half, you got to be really careful about the background if you're planning to use the morph cut was my only warning because I saw an example and nobody noticed the background except for me. I commented and like, and then they're all like, oh, you're right. You got to be careful about that. <laughs> Uh, one other thing uh, on on that sort of issue, um, have you ever done the uh, th uh, 360 degree photos of a location and someone's walking by and then there'll be like a dog in the next shot and it'll like morph the dog and the person together into this like weird like, <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's not a good effect, but it's kind of fun, um, especially if you're like in a nat national park or something like that and you're doing a full th a 360 degree perspective, just something weird and fun to run into. You even see it on um, Google's uh, maps. If you're looking around on maps, sometimes if you look down at the corner, you'll see like a fence post that disappears and like turns into grass or something like that because it didn't capture it and stitch it together uh -huh. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how that's going to work actually with uh, their new 360 degree cameras as well. Uh, you've seen the beanpole mount, uh, uh, right? It's like 30 GoPros or 16 GoPros all in a, a nice big circle. Is that going to stitch everything together perfectly? Or are we going to end up with, uh, you know, disappearing cars and disappearing people as we rotate around? I, I'm, sh I'm sure they're with any kind of morphing situation like that. People will be, contorted and it's just like uh those old science fiction movies if you try to teleport yourself from one place to another you may end up with a fly on your head 
<laughs> All right. Uh, last thing on the list here. I'm looking through. Actually, that was the last thing on the list. That was the last thing. Yeah. Mitch, do you have anything else you want to touch on before we close up shop for the day? No, this is, it's been a wonderful hour and three minutes and 21 seconds so far. Love awesome. talking to you, DJ. Well, guys, thanks again for listening to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Make sure you go over to all the social networks and click the like button because that helps us out a little bit. Also, you can find this on SoundCloud as well as iTunes. Make sure you write a review on iTunes. Tell people how much you love listening to Mitch and I talk for an hour. Uh, And we won't pay you. Yeah, no no cash. That is just (laughs) showing your love and support. Uh, Also, Mitch, where can people find you? Well, goodbye. 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 They can find me over at a website called planet5d.com. And also, I'm on planetmitch.com if you ever want to just see some of my other projects. Awesome. Thanks, guys, again for listening. And we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs>